and non-benders alike. Welcome to Braving the Elements, Nickelodeon's brand new podcast about all things Avatarverse. I'm Janet Varney. And I am Dante Bosco. Now before we get started, I wanted to just have a moment to honor the amazing Felice Sampler who passed away last week. Of course, she played the iconic older Toph in The Legend of Korra, was such a light so very much exactly the person that you would want to play this iconic role of the older Toph. And so we are dedicating this episode of Braving the Elements to Felice and her extraordinary body of work, you know, not just on The Legend of Korra, but in anime and in film and TV and just had a, leaves an extraordinary legacy. So this one's for you, Felice. So last week, we just recapped episode two of The Last Airbender, The Avatar Returns, and we'll be getting back to the recaps next Tuesday. Don't you worry. But today, we're talking to the person whose name gets dropped an awful lot when discussing the conception of Avatar The Last Airbender and how the show got made. Certainly, Mike and Brian have made no secret about feeling like this person was a huge part of how the show came to be at all. He's mentioned in the very, very fine Avatar The Last Airbender art book. And so we got to the point where we were like, you know what? This is exasperating. Let's just talk to him. There's a lot of people out there listening to this podcast. You know, you see credits at the end of the movie or TV show animation, and we all see them. And I'm sure you're like, what the heck does that guy do? Like that dude <laughs> who's in all the credits on every show. Like what what does he do? And and look, I'm not talking at higher than thou. I'm often in the room with these executive types. And I also think, hey man, what do you do? As <laughs> as I moved my career into the production side, into the development side of things, I'm starting to find out firsthand like what the heck you guys do. But should we introduce the man, Janet? So the person we're talking about, if you haven't guessed, is former Nickelodeon Vice President of Animation Development and Production, the one and only, except there are probably a handful of people who have the same name as him, but that's okay because there are a lot of Janet Varney's out there that I wasn't prepared for, but they're out there and I love them. Please welcome Eric Coleman. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hello, hello. Very, very happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to assume that this is the right Eric Coleman. I mean, I just made a lot of noise about how there might be a handful of Eric <laughs> Coleman's, but I feel like maybe we sh we've the vetting process has already happened. We're not going to grill you overly to prove you are who you are. It will instantly make this podcast far more interesting if I'm not the Eric That's Coleman true. who had anything to do with Avatar. <laughs> He's like, I'm a professional skateboarder. We're like, great, man. <laughs> Let's dig in. This will be awesome. Now, just a little bit of a meta foreshadow report. Since we're talking to Eric about all things Avatar, I just wanted to warn everybody that we may encounter a few spoilers in the mix today since we had a chance to talk with him and look beyond where we are in the series so far. So if you are not fully caught up, this is a good time to press pause on the podcast and just hang on to this episode uh, until you've seen the entire series. How about that little treat, little bonbon waiting for you at the end? You heard us say it, Eric. We don't always on the talent side and often on the audience and fan side get a sense of what someone's involvement was at the executive level in a place like Nickelodeon or elsewhere. And so I've always kind of loved that Mike and Brian were so vocal about giving credit where credit was due and talking about how you were, and I quote, as Brian said, never your typical executive. That's a loaded statement. What does that mean? Why don't you answer? What do you think Brian means when he describes you 
as never a typical executive. No pressure. Uh, I I would not be so bold as to try to uh, speak to exactly what Brian was thinking, <laughs> but I will say lots of folks have very different types of interactions with executives, and there's just lots of different ways to go about executiving. What I think and what I appreciate so much that Brian was talking about was that my history with him really was not just someone coming in with a pitch and saying, hey, here's my show but really more of a relationship we built up and then me encouraging him and kind of working with him and then Mike along the way. We were working on a show called Invader Zim. Pause for applause for the beloved Invader Zim. Yes, classic. Yes, it it was a sort of a brilliant show and Brian was the art director on that show and Jonan Vasquez is just an incredible mind and an incredible talent. And he had good taste to have Brian Konitzko in the position he did. And when that show ended, I knew that Brian was someone that I I wanted to stay close with and encourage him to develop his own show. So we went to lunch and just really had a good bonding, get to know each other on a deeper level. And I was able to share where my head was at and what I was looking for. And again, sometimes as a development executive, you just sort of sit there with a big catcher's mitt and you just sort of hope something good is going to come in the door. It's possible, but it's a much more powerful process when you can have a relationship and understand what the network is looking for and for an executive to understand the talents of the artist, writer, director. Way more powerful process. And we had this great conversation. I shared much of what we were looking for. And at the time, we were developing... Uh, and producing a lot of really broad character-based comedies that were on the air. And I just wanted us to do something different. So I I kind of threw out this challenge to Brian. And when he and Mike came in and kind of rose to the occasion with just the whole idea of bending, it it really was one of the greatest pitches I have ever heard. We joke about it now and they have talked about it because they went on for so long, (laughs) on and on and on. And finally, I literally, I did just stop them. And I was like, I'm I'm kind of overwhelmed. I can't follow it anymore. I have no idea what's going on, but it's amazing. So what were they showing you? Were there drawings or? It was incredible. They they had these three images in particular to give a, a sense of just the vibe of the show. One was... Aang on the floating bison, a herd of floating bison. And one was Aang swooping down on a firebender warship. And then this third image of just Aang in the Avatar state, glowing eyes, glowing tattoos. And at this point, I mean, it's it's sort of hard to fathom that there was a moment in time where I don't know Avatar, I don't know what any of this is. I'm just seeing this and it's so beautiful and it's so compelling. And because... Brian is such a good artist. It's not just the the technical skill, but he was presenting these images in a way that just makes you want to learn more, makes mm-hmm. you want to ask questions and know more about these characters and what's going on. Oh, wow. I love the way you put that. I wouldn't have thought to say it that way, but it's so true. They were kind of up for the constant challenges that I would throw their way. As a development guy, I'm a big believer in, I'm not here to make my thing. I'm here to help you make the best version of your thing. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm asking, I'm just kind of poking and asking them questions. So one thing in in particular that I I especially enjoyed, and Dante, you can appreciate this because early on the initial pitch, 
there were our main trio, and then there was the Fire Lord. And in these conversations, I had thrown out just what if, what if the villain is a kid? Yeah, because Zuko was originally conceived to be an adult. And I was thinking in terms of relationships. I think that's one of the most important components of a good show. And people don't often talk about it in that way. They talk about characters and character arcs, and they talk about the themes of the show, and they talk about the plot, the overall mythology. Those are all crucial. 100%. But in addition to that, to just think in terms of relationships, and you start to see how characters come alive as they bounce off each other in different ways. And the idea of having the main villain be a kid, it just, to me, it seems like we could pull the villain into the story in a way where there was just kind of a connection between what our heroes were going through and what the villain was going through, as opposed to just a big super bad guy. Yeah, that's huge. Oh, that's such a great idea and so true. Yeah, so we, we still had the, the fun of the big bad guy. Um, and, and again, I just sort of would throw these things out to them and they would come back with things that were always 10 times better than what I expected. So they came back with this whole story of Zuko. And instead of him just being a bad guy with a big gun trying to kill our heroes, he was this guy with his own deep issues, his own journey that he has to go on. And man, they and the team and Dante <laughs> created a character that ultimately is is my favorite character, as many fans' favorite characters. Get in line, Eric. Get in line. Hey. He's everybody's favorite character, possibly including mine. Eric, Eric, you're so modest. You're so modest. Eric's like, I don't, you're, you're like the fifth Beatle. Or you're like, <laughs> you know, maybe you're Alfred. Maybe there's Batman Robin and there's Alfred that's doing a lot of, of amazing things. I love it. And you've, you've illuminated so much for me because I, I, I felt when I walked in to audition for, for the whole series, I remember I was walking into Nickelodeon at that time. And, and I tell the story like, you know, that time, it's like you walk into the white building with the green double dare slime on top, right? And the big yep. letters, Nickelodeon. <laughs> and then you walk in and there's massive portraits of Cat Dog and SpongeBob, like 20-foot portraits of everything. And, and it's great. And then, you know, they give me this script that I am start reading and I'm like, what is this script? Hold on a second. Like, <laughs> Where am I? It's anime inspired. It's, it's martial arts. It's epic. It's like these four elements. I'm like... This is not Nickelodeon. Like, where did this come from? In the back of my mind, I'm like, this is never going to make it to air. What are these guys thinking? Because, I mean, arguably, I think truthfully that Nickelodeon's never done a show like this or since, like, Legend of Korra. It's not like they did a, a series of shows that were this kind of genre or this kind of feel. There's nothing that anything else in the library that is remotely like Avatar, which is fascinating. It's very true. I'm a big believer in creativity by definition means breaking the mold. It means doing something that is different from what was done before. And that often looks weird and unfamiliar and uncomfortable. So through the development process, because I only had a certain level of power, and then once the big money decisions kick in, I'm selling it up the ranks to my, my bosses. And in this case, it was not a hard sell because the, the content itself was just so solid. I, I was super proud about uh, uh, uh oh I a, is that a dog uh, dream i have a barking dog having a dog dream i know that specific dog dream sound because it's that dog like dream. sort of it's closed. a dog dream there's that puff of air that comes out because his mouth is closed or her mouth is closed <laughs> and it's like <laughs> like oh they're not at full bark i knew it had to be a dream that's so funny
So anyways, just jumping into something that seemed so unlike everything else, I just was a big advocate for that's exactly why we have to do it. You know, the next SpongeBob is going to look nothing like SpongeBob. So why make a pale imitation of something that is already so great and instead just strike out in a new direction, try something. And those are often sometimes the biggest misses too, but they're super interesting. And in the case of Avatar, I just, I always believed in this show because it really was rock solid. It felt very specific with creative notions, but very universal. Well, it's the hero's journey, right? Like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. And Harry Potter, that in and of itself is nothing unique. But the execution of it, that's where they took something that was immediately accessible and just made it wonderful. So wonderful. And also just very complex and layered. And I think something that is ultimately so satisfying in Avatar is there are so many ideas in there. There's so much going on. And it is a, it's the type of show that really rewards the viewer who sticks with it because you, you physically spend your own time with these characters and you grow with them. So when was the last time you saw Avatar? I just had the, the deep, deep pleasure of sharing it with my two sons. And I made them wait until they were a little older. And they had, they had asked about it years ago. And I was always pushing and pushing because I knew that they would like the fight scenes and the, the beautiful visuals. But if they waited until they were a little older, they could appreciate the character dynamics and the journey that the characters go on. And and I wouldn't let them binge. <laughs> we watched one, <laughs> one episode because I felt like you have to let watch it sink, each sink one. In. I love, and yeah, let it I sink love in. it. Like just let it just marinate. I love your conducting of this. Yeah. <laughs> it was so great. So it, it I mean, it, 61 episodes you know it took a yeah. long time we, we had to watch the finale we watched all the 10 pole episodes together and we watched together, the finale yeah. as a finale and uh it's just so rewarding for for the viewer for the the crew i am so grateful to have been a part of it all and and i know you guys feel that as well in your respective roles It's so fascinating that you talk about even that, like binging it as opposed to old school watching it week to week and, and how that changes your experience of the story and how, how the studios think about that now as they're creating the shows and as they're pitching the shows. Is it different how you guys are looking about developing shows now, the binge worthiness it's, it's of things? Definitely, you have to think of the, keep the platform in mind. If you are a streaming platform, there's a benefit to having the type of show that just encourages you to stick around and watch the next episode and keep paying for your subscription. <laughs> you you right. got to know you got to know what happens next. So it, it's an interesting time now because you're seeing different platforms also who's dropping all the episodes at once versus who is is pacing them out. You know, the Mandalorian is paced differently than right. the way Netflix drop shows. Oh, that's so true. And it's not something that we as viewers are necessarily thinking about. So there's there's no right answer. It's just different viewer experiences. For me personally, it's not that I don't want to binge something. It's like eating the whole tub of ice cream. You know, you, you, you want to keep going and have the good stuff. But then when you're all done, sometimes it might have been better to just pace it out mm -hmm. a little bit. Yes. And, and it's fascinating. But with things like, you know, when Stranger Things first came out, it was this big hubbub. But then as it released the next season, the conversation's like a week or a month as opposed to when Game of Thrones was going week for week. The conversation lasted six months. 
It's great. Yeah. You know, it's how long you want to yeah. hold the conversation. That's exactly right. And I think a challenge with binging is it's hard for everyone to participate in the conversation in the same way because you can't come in to work or school or the gym or wherever and right. say, oh, my God, did you see what happened last night? Instead, there's kind of this, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you've seen it. So mm-hmm. we're just not going to talk. With my boys and my wife and our dog, it was definitely like the slow build. Thank you, Eric, so much for including your dog in that statement. We know just from hearing her dream. Listen, there's a lot that goes on in our dog's minds. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much fun because I, of course, know what's going to happen. But to see my boys just having no idea what's going to happen, how this could get any better. And yet it does keep getting better and better. That's one of the, the brilliant elements of Avatar is this journey that they go on. And that was there from the beginning. What what Mike and Brian were pitching to me was not a show about beating the bad guys. It was a show about restoring balance. But you can almost think of the characters, it's almost like a seesaw. You know, if, if, the, if one of the themes is restoring balance, every character is is kind of out of whack at the beginning. Right. And I'm not talking good or bad. I'm just talking about whatever their character want versus their need. It's all just out of balance. And you can look at the characters by the end, Aang in his way, Katara, Sokka, Zuko, certainly. And then the villains who never achieved that balance, you know, their their seesaw just grounded into the ground. So it just provides a really enjoyable experience for the viewer who isn't just getting to experience the the amazing fight scenes and the amazing visuals, but also go on this long road trip with these characters and really get to know them and really care about what they care about. And then when when Toph entered the group, that changed the dynamic in another way. The role was initially um, intended to be a male character. And when the decision was made to make it female, and I just felt strongly and and very aligned with Mike and Brian about we shouldn't worry about any of those other things. We should worry about making the show as good as it can be. And I really believed, as they did, the execution in that decision and in all the other decisions was going to be the best for the storytelling. Obviously, you're talking about it knowing that everything begins with the story, right? And that that you see it serving the story to have Toph be that character. But what a huge, huge decision that impacted the sort of social experience of the viewer. Because, you know, Dante and I do so many cons and have so much fan interaction. And that's become such a huge part of what makes this a rich and, and meaningful experience for us. And how many times, D, do we get, you know, Toph is so many young people's favorite character from from girls to boys to non-binary character. I mean, there's something so accessible about her and there's a permission there about the type of character that she is that just feels like such a a welcome in to the show to so many people young and old who've experienced the show and she's blind and barefoot and it's like there's so many aspects of talk she's such a favorite she's such a favorite and it would have been wildly different if she were a boy and i think it would have just changed the whole way that that so many fans have this emotional connection to the show because they she's the doorway for for many people. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it ties in a little bit to what I was talking about before, just in relationships, because her energy in the mix, the relationship she has 
with all of the characters individually um, and what she does to the group dynamic, it just makes everything richer. And then as the stories get pulled closer together and Zuko gets in that mix, it's just such a rich tapestry. Absolutely. And also just to give a shout out to Grey and Azula, which of course we also have not met. What another great character to introduce because, you know, as you were saying, the true villains, which we will not count Zuko and Iroh among because that's not who they are. But even someone like Azula, you know, you have an episode like The Beach and suddenly so many things drop into place, even about a character like her, who is as you said, pretty straight ahead until being ground down, but right. that you can, that you can Humanization do something. Humanization of her. Humanizing her. And all, and you did such, the, the show did such a great job of creating the sort of structure around that, even though they weren't hammering in her humanity, that w- all it took was, you know, one or two episodes to go, you know, I kind of feel sorry for her. Like, she's, you know, her, her life is so limited. Her view is so limited and her accessibility to others and emotion is so limited that, you know, she gets humanized. It's a fantastic episode because on the surface, it feels like a fun break from all this doom and gloom that's going on. But it's it's sort of sneaky in the way that it's actually doing a lot of heavy lifting, not just for the, the 22 minutes of the episode, but for what comes before and what comes after. It gives you so much insight into, into those characters, into their relationship, and just you know, Azula is, she, ultimately, she is what Zuko thinks he wants to be mm. and the relationship right. that he wants well and the person he wants to be. And um, it's it's tragic to see her, uh, her crumble over the course of the series, but it's also the contrast serves as further reflection on just Zuko's evolution as a character. Absolutely. And you can appreciate that journey by having the information you get from episodes like The Beach. It, it's another example I was saying before how the, the series is very rewarding. It throws out little crumbs along the way and they don't feel like they're crumbs. They don't, they, they just, you're just enjoying the episode. But when things add up at the end, um, it's wonderful. <laughs> you kind of feel like we've all accomplished this thing together. And I, I really do think that's one of the enduring elements of the show. I think that's why people just enjoy it so. Absolutely. I love that you continue with this sort of binging a cake idea where you're just eating a, a, a little crumb of cake at a time <laughs> and you really <laughs> savor the crumb. And then finally at the end, you ate a whole cake, but you feel fine because you didn't eat it all at once. It's, it's possible that the reason I keep coming back to that, it's possible is because of my job. I have a behind the scenes insight into how much work goes into these <laughs> and how much work goes into just painting a background. The backgrounds in this show are exquisite. The costumes, the props, all of these things, the color palette, how it changes. So much goes into it. And so I think I am sensitive to it when people just gobble it up and go on to the next thing because they want the big moments. It's good, though. It's good for us to be reminded. Yeah. And so just to to slow down and to be able to appreciate. It's great to be reminded, especially with our fans. Well, and as you're talking about your job, you know, I have to ask for myself and for fans out there, like you're you're a development exec, like we're talking to you and you're, you're, you're detailed to story and this town's all about taste and and you're it's great. I love what you're how you're describing everything and how involved you are. How how does one become a network exec development like 
is it do you come from film school do you come from uh animation like how like i'm just and i'm sure a lot of people out there like what where is this guy come from like where does that come from great question excellent question and i hopefully it's a helpful answer to people listening that there's no one exact way but starting at the bottom is generally part of the answer so i was fortunate and then i got my foot in the door at nickelodeon right at the beginning i started as an assistant in new york right on the first wave of nicktoons so ren and stimpy rugrats and doug and i was there for 16 years and worked my way up the ladder and had some great mentors along the way and then when it was my turn to kind of move into development i was really really fortunate to be able to work with steve hillenberg on spongebob and i learned so much as i grew in my career was able to take all of the the teachings that i received from the people and from experiences good and bad i see a lot of folks who are very impatient and they feel like i've been out of school for nine months and how come I don't have my own show yet? And Mike and Brian worked on multiple productions before and learned, learned, learned. It's the networking so you can learn, so you have the skills and the talent and therefore you bring value to the situation. Do the work to be good at it because there's on one hand more opportunity than ever because there's so much production going on, but also there's more competition than ever because everyone wants to be a part of it. It's not enough to just have passion. You absolutely need to have that, but but it really helps to have some type of skill to bring your passion alive. As a, a person who's interested in the meta conversation about entertainment, you hear a lot like, well, it's just so arbitrary, da 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 da. And that can be very scary and discouraging. And it's it's really nice to have those conversations and continue reminding people that there is still plenty to be accomplished by starting at the bottom in entertainment and actually being rewarded along the way. You can be great and get better and be inside of the making of something special. And it isn't just like, oh, just show up and cross your fingers. But like Eric just said, just because you are great doesn't mean you're actually going to make it. Also, there's like that dichotomy going on. It's like, be great, better opportunities if you become really good at what you do. But just because you're really good at what you do doesn't actually equate to success Doesn't guarantee you that's true in in most jobs as well doesn't guarantee you but i, I feel like there's a doesn't um, guarantee that's saying the the more prepared i am the luckier i get yes mm, yes that's great so i just really am a believer in in that you know we're talking sort of the job career but also it goes for developing a show itself if you feel like good enough isn't good enough if we can make it five percent better <laughs> you know like let's try and if we run out of time and run out of money then okay. But I love working with people who hold the bar really high for themselves. And um, that's one of the things I really love about animation. It is so collaborative and there's an opportunity for so many people to add to the process along the way. Kind of mind-bogglingly as we have learned more and more and more about the process. And this all dovetails so nicely into Mike and Brian because that's very much a theme that arose from our conversations with them was just like, not being disappointed in yourself by also thinking it can always be better. I think that's something that a lot of creative people who also were ambitious, you know, the sort of like, I should have my hands on everything to make sure that we're all doing the best work possible. There's that balance of like, when do I also sit back and go, okay, job well done, 
just so that I stay sane and recognize my talent rather than going like, it could always be better. You know, you hear sort of Brian talking about his struggle with that. And, and you know, that's a real thing. You're absolutely right. It's a it's a balance. And, you know, the the coach part of me is saying like, hey, if we can make it better, let's make it better. But as you just pointed out, you do have to, within yourself, acknowledge when something is really strong and you, you can polish something forever and sometimes polish the edges off of it. Mm-hmm. And it's better just, I feel like momentum breeds momentum. Well, Eric, we are so glad that we got to talk about all of this with you. And now I think we are going to pick your brain about some more kind of creative aspects of the Avatarverse right after the short break. We have a segment that we call Animal Crossing, taking credit for original Animal Crossing. No, all due respect to Animal Crossing. Do you have a favorite <laughs> hybrid animal? And if you know that your sons do, feel free to shout those out as well. Oh, I I think the quick, easy answer is Appa. Just that that yeah that yeah. bison manatee that shape. It's partly Appa as a character, so wonderful, but also for me, the the visual that that first image of the the herd of floating bison. It was just something mm-hmm. that was so appealing, intriguing, beautiful, peaceful. Um, yeah, and then it doesn't hurt that Appa himself is just a big wonderful character yes with beautiful square teeth his teeth are so square (laughs) he just all molars all molars beautiful molars i shout out to momo i do have a little momo pin on momo's great too Uh, i mean appa's arguably the last airbender himself the last of the bison airbenders he was the last he he and ang were both the last airbenders yes i do i do love how momo brings a relationship again it's talking about relationships so you know it just makes everything richer just it's it i think it just heightens the emotion on everything and even these characters who don't talk you feel like they have a deep relationship i mean we know Zuko is your favorite character, you know, my, mine also. Way to shoehorn <laughs> that back in. What kind of bender would you be? I'm just one, just just throw it out. Oh, I have a quick answer to that because we had this very conversation in my household after watching. <gasps> nice. Um, I would be an airbender. I knew it. Ah. They can they you can sound fly. like an airbender to be calm, honest. Thoughtful energy. The second very you said thoughtful. let's not binge, yeah, don't let's not binge the let's be mindful. Very zenful. Let's not, if he had said firebender, we would have been like, what have we just been talking about for the last forty five <laughs> minutes? What is happening? You're totally an airbender, and I love the airbenders. Yeah. They're great. There's not many of them. It's a great question because all four of them are wonderful choices. There's not a bad choice, and there's there's elements of each. And again, we had this conversation, but if I, you know, it really came down to it. Airbenders, they can fly, their vibe, their just their energy. That's what I choose. And and your sons, your sons. What about your sons? They have they, your sons lean one way or the other. Among the family, I think there were airbenders and a waterbender. Okay, very nice, peaceful family. I know that's a nice family. I mean, they're not all that bad. You seem like firebending would be fun, but if you really are choosing what is your power, it's not much you could do with firebending other than destroy. <laughs> I mean, we could warm people, warm you people, cook food. You could make a food, wonderful hot spring. Great chef. Great chef. Great chef. I'm sure that great chefs true. are firebenders. <laughs> One thing I just want to ask you, too, is as we talk about, you know, the conversation lasting, how does it feel to, to help create this show that the conversation has now lasted 20 years and the resurgence of a show like this and you've been a part of so many great shows but the the, the specialness of this show and, and the resurgence during the pandemic I mean 
did that how did you feel about all that it feels wonderful partly for the obvious answer of the show's a big hit and that's fun to be a part of but i think the part that is very fulfilling is this show represents so much of what i believe creatively and as I said before, when you're putting something out there, everything is risky. So it's it's sort of a nice affirmation of believing in talent more than the idea, believing in character story more than plot. So when all that works and it's successful, it's it's fantastic. I I love when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Not to make a favorite, but is there a relationship within the show? that stands out to you or that kind of comes to mind when you think about, because you spoke so well of the relationships between characters, is there a relationship between two characters that is kind of jumping out as, as particularly satisfying to you? Um, it, you know, it's a great question because I, I'm, <laughs> I'm like excited to talk about all the different dynamics <laughs> because they all grow. If you're asking me to pick one, it's definitely Zuko and Iroh just because working backwards if the the reason Zuko is my favorite character because he has the most uh, satisfying journey and conclusion from you think of where he started and where he concluded and Iroh not only was there with him but is a key proponent in causing his transformation and the reunion between the two characters I mean again like I know it's coming I know what happens the whole time my sons are so upset that they have this break apart and, you know, Zuko betrayed his trust, all this. And even though I know what's happening when that, that scene where they reunite, you know, I start, it's, yeah. start misting up a little tear running down my cheek because it's so beautiful. His forgiveness, you know, uncle is everyone loves him because he's lovable. He's funny. He's charming. He's right. kind. But there's such deep emotion in that moment, in that forgiveness and in that belief in him. And I think the, the, the power of that is even stronger than people realize. People think it's just a nice emotional reunion, but it speaks again. It ties back into the huge themes in the show and it ties into balance and it ties in. It's so beautiful when he says, I was never angry with you. I was sad because I was afraid you lost your way. It's like he just is speaking directly to the theme, which just goes for all of them. They all find their way in, in, in some fashion over the course. And that's why I think that finale is it's so satisfying. It's so good. But, the, you know, the wild thing about that, Eric, that you might not know on the talent side, on the actor side, those are the episodes when Mako passed away. So Mako passed away during that time. And, of course, we were all emotionally charged. Then I came in to do the, the scene where where Uncle's in, in prison and, and Zuko's talking to Iroh, but Mako's passed away. There's no lines. I'm just talking in the booth to Mako. And then when we have the reunion, this is when Greg first came to the studio and it's put in a small booth where no one can see him. And he's talking in the booth, the solo booth, while we're in the other side. And when Greg opened his mouth and the, re, you know, the reunion starts happening, it's like we all burst into tears. Andre Ramon, all of us in, in, the, in the executive booth, in the director's booth, in the actors, and it was, and so part of that emotional thing is in, it's like it, the, the performances with the, with the animation in that time, it was like a, it was such a magical and somber and melancholy, but beautiful moment. 
I know I realize as I'm as I'm talking about how emotional it was for me, <laughs> it makes sense that it was exponentially more emotional for you to just to just really be in there in that moment. I'm happy that you got to experience and continue to be able to be the the actor who, who was that character. And and it's a special thing when you I, I've I've enjoyed talking to some folks when you get a call up, you know, it's a casting call or your your agent or manager sends you out for a, to, to read yeah. some lines. You have no idea what what lays ahead of you. No idea. No kidding. No kidding. Oh, this has been so wonderful. Eric, so amazing, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I feel like I want to enroll in Eric Coleman University to just take a semester of classes. I know. I feel the same way. Like, I'm ready... I want to hear the TED Talk. You'd be such a great professor. I know. I know. This was really inspiring. I, I appreciate that. You guys are wonderful. What a, an amazing conversation with Eric Coleman. And so next week we get back into the recap. We're doing episode three, The Southern Air Temple. It's an amazing episode. We see a whole new place. And yet there's some sad stuff that happens. So I'm going to bring a tissue. Please remember, friends, if you haven't already subscribed or followed, please do so. You can do it wherever you find your podcast.